Hello, I'm Sarah Day, Policy and Research Manager at the HFMA, and you're listening to HFMA Talk, the podcast for NHS Finance. On today's episode, I am joined by David Bacon. David is Director of Finance at Hertfordshire Community NHS Trust and discusses the impact of COVID-19 on community services and how they are approaching the recovery phase. The pandemic has provided an opportunity to re-examine processes and decide which parts are really necessary as the new business-as-usual model is developed. So, hello David, thank you so much for having time to talk to us today. Good morning, it's a pleasure. So, first of all, could you describe your trust to us, uh, what you do and the population that you cover? Yes, so Hertfordshire Community NHS Trust covers uh, the whole of the county of Hertfordshire. Uh, we are a provider of community services. We employ just over 2,100 staff. We deliver adult community services to the east and north part of the county and children's and young people services across the whole county, including therapy, immunisation services, public health nursing services as well. Population of Hertfordshire is about 1.2 million, broadly similar to England in terms of its uh, male-female age ethnicity mix. So how has COVID-19 impacted Hertfordshire so far? Um, Hertfordshire is the county. Uh, we've got two large acute trusts. Um, they've had significant pressures. They've had cumulatively about 500 deaths recorded between them. For um, Hertfordshire Community Trust, um, which, which I clearly know a bit more about, uh, we've had staff absences due to COVID illness or self-isolating or shielding. That's currently falling, but cumulatively we've had over 28% of our staff have at one time or another been off work in the last 10 weeks because of it. We run three relatively small inpatient units, predominantly taking patients from the acute trust on a step-down basis, and we've reported nine deaths through those units. So have you been seeing any changes in demand for your services? I imagine there was quite a peak at the beginning when the acute trust were trying to make space. Yes and no, in the sense that, um, yes, we had demand from the acute sector. Uh, we redeployed about 350 of our clinical staff and about 80 of our corporate staff to support that response. Um, some of those people went into COVID-19 specific services, but we also increased staff numbers in, you know, for example, the bed-based units where we increase the number of beds. Uh, or we changed working arrangements, and we also found the acuity of patients was increasing um, in that step-down process, so the the clinical mix had to change as well. But what we've also seen is um, some, some significant reductions in our call services. So, for example, in April, if we compare April 2020 to April 2019, our adult referrals have reduced by about 33% and our children's and young people referrals by about 14%. And similarly, in terms of contacts with patients, uh, again, comparing to April 19, adult contacts are down by about 19% and children and young people down by about 43%. So it's not all been extra pressure. Um, there have been some some elements of what we've done in the past that have that have slowed down to provide the capacity to deal with the COVID specific. And we also had, as a community provider, we had the specific instruction from um, from the centre uh, in the letters from Simon Stevens on the 29th of March, updated on the 2nd of April, 
that gave us a specific instruction on which community services we were to either stop completely, to partially pause or to or to carry on running. And have you had any specific instructions in terms of restarting those? Or is that down to your discretion? Literally a letter's come out today that I haven't fully digested that gives us some instruction about which specific services to start. But we are separately talking to our uh, local commissioners uh, and we are we have started restarted some services even this week and we'll carry on with the rest next week um, balancing staff services that can be started because they are now um, in a situation where they can start and we don't need to move staff who've been redeployed back into those services and then later on next week and week after some of the staff that were redeployed to go back to their sort of original service base. So I imagine that a lot of your services are um, going into people's homes or having quite close contact with people and you're probably having to make some significant changes to how things are being delivered. What have you had to do to continue? Um, yes, so obviously uh, personal protective equipment is uh, a key factor um, and also the social distancing, particularly where a, a clinician isn't wearing PPE. Um, so we've continued to give advice to our staff, um, updating that as the uh, national advice updates as well. Uh, we've also moved to uh, virtual and video consultations. So we're using a couple of pieces of software and we have had quite a lot of success with that. With I forget the exact number, but certainly over 2000 consultations across uh, 20, 20 or so of our community-based services just in, in April and the first part of May. So a lot of early early enthusiasm for using video consultation and you know looking forward we are starting to see video consultation as the um as a default means of, of contact with staff and, and revert to in-home or in clinic settings where there is a clinical need. So you've obviously had to change how you're delivering your services. How have you had to change um, your your governance of your organisation as a consequence of, of COVID? So, so there's a couple of different things, I suppose, on the pure sort of financial governance side of things. Uh, we, we made some changes to our standing financial instructions uh, to improve that process for reviewing and approving invoices giving us a, an ability to better respond to the requirement to pay suppliers within seven days. Uh, we've introduced and approved at our board meeting at the end of March. Uh, we approved some processes for emergency decision-making that, that might need to be made that include the chair, the chief exec, the audit chair. Um, in terms of uh, the actual governance of those meetings, they have not surprisingly sort of been done on MS Teams. Uh, across both board, performance and finance committees and audit committees. Uh, from the perspective of COVID-specific costs, we've introduced separate cost centres to capture some of the sort of direct non-paid costs. We've also identified some of the finance team to work on monitoring that and also capturing the other costs that we might need to separate out from, from other cost centres. So, for example, if staff do overtime because the requirements of COVID-19 mean we need more people to work or people to work longer hours, we're extracting that overtime cost out as part of our COVID-19 cost. And we introduced 
the requirement for our chief exec to review those costs um, before the centre introduces that requirement as part of their claiming process. On the clinical side, uh, we've introduced a clinical advice um, group who review all of the service and pathway changes before they're implemented and link into an ethics committee as well so that we have the clinical governance about making the rapid changes to services that certainly in the early part of, of April we were having to do. So what's been the role of the of your system in this? Have you seen different sorts of decision makings at a system level as well? Um, so I think we've probably focused far more on uh, our local commissioners. So within the system, the two, the two primary CCGs that we have um, have, have taken different leads for different components um, and we've linked in with both of those as, as and when needs be. We have good working relationships with the um, Hertfordshire County Council already, uh, primarily because we currently provide the public health nursing service to them. So they are a major commissioner of, of our services already. So so we've just developed those, um, those contacts with them. So we've started to give them support around care homes, supporting care homes. They've opened two extra care homes to increase the capacity primarily for uh, post-COVID hospital discharges. We're providing the medical cover for that. Um, in terms of the STP, the STP has, has got more involved in the recovery stage, I guess, in terms of coordinating the recovery plans we all had to put the plans in a couple or three weeks ago and the STP had a primary role in, in in bringing all those together but I think our direct contacts are probably more with our commissioners the two CCGs and the um and, and the council. And what about primary care how have they fitted into what you've been doing? So a couple of things that we've done with primary care we've we have a referral hub um, and we've put extra clinical capacity into that referral hub to help primary care in terms of managing their their contacts. Uh, we've also vacated some of our clinic buildings so that primary care can create some of these hot hubs uh, in terms of our hot cold structure, COVID positive, COVID-19. So through the, the whole sort of mutual aid process, they are accessing some of our, our clinical space to help with that. And just moving on now to think about your finance team, how have they adapted to uh, to COVID nineteen? Have working practices changed in any yes. way? Yes. So, so none of the finance team have been in the office since twenty fourth of March when lockdown was implemented. Uh, they've all been working from home. We took the decision early on not to redeploy them. Uh, we we came to the conclusion that if we brought back some of the you know, the budget holder responsibilities like authorization of, of supplier payments and, and other things um, that would that would have a better um, outcome in the sense of it would free up those operational managers to focus on the service uh, and allow us to deal with the business side of things behind the scenes rather than leave that business responsibility with the operational manager and, and put a finance person into the team as admin support so we, we went that way around. We've done the accounts remotely um, and we're completing a working through the audit process 
not only with our team being remote, but clearly the audit team were remote as well. So that's been quite challenging for everyone, um, particularly when we had two people in relatively senior roles who were doing the accounts and, and working through the audit process for the first time. But we've used lots of MS team meetings, as has everyone. Um, we got the account submitted on the 27th of April and we're just now coming to the end of the audit process. And is there anything you've learned from doing the things a bit differently that you'd like to keep for the future? I think that the simple answer to that is yes, both in terms of the pure finance, but in, to, in terms of the, um, the service as well. Um, in terms of finance, I think we just we need to have the, the proper discussion with the team but I think there are certain things in our processes that because things were being done remotely people were seeing those processes and I think we've got a few questions about the processes that why are we doing so, you know, stage you know, for example stage three and four of a process why can't we go just from two to five and what value do those ones in the middle add so we'll be undertaking that sort of review and from a, a clinical service perspective mm-hmm. Uh, we're reviewing services as the mo- at the moment as part of the, the recovery work, obviously having to factor in social distancing in clinic and office-based environments and, and also assess the impact that has on the, the, the effectiveness of those facilities. So we've seen various estimates that for some of our clinics, the footfall through those clinics might reduce by 75% and we'll only be able to see you know, a quarter of the, the number of patients in those clinics that we would see before. So hence, working on the digital default is an assumption that, that, you know, future face-to-face consultations will be replaced by video consultations. The two then start to to potentially balance out uh, with only face-to-face happening where there's a clear clinical or social reason for it to happen. Yeah. And we're also reviewing all of the both the core services we used we we run before and the new services that um, that we've put in place with commissioners in response to COVID, and we're doing that with our commissioners to work through what does the community offer look like post COVID in the new normal. You know, in terms of how much of of, of what might have historically been done, say in the community in, in the acute sector, could now move into a a community setting or or a virtual setting. And how can some of the changes that had big impacts on patient flow that were put in relatively quickly, how can the benefit of all of those be retained for the future? Mm. So what do you see the next couple of months holding for you then? Where are your priorities? I think for me as a director of finance, I think the priority is to to get behind what the financial arrangements for the rest of the financial year are. Um, at the moment, we just have the funding certainty to the end of July. I think we're all expecting information to come out by the end of June about what August onward looks like. So it's a matter of getting hold of that information, working through it, and then managing that and implementing that internally. I, I've taken a provisional, well, not even a provisional, I've taken a financial plan for the four months to July to my finance and performance committee and they have the clear understanding that that will need to be supplemented based on the the, um, arrangements that are published for the August to March period. So that's a bit of work we will have to do. From the pure service side, uh, I think the main focus is, is going to be on just making sure we don't lose some of the uh, service developments that have happened almost overnight, make sure we don't lose those going forward. 
And I think from the staff side, we are looking at bringing some staff back into the office on a on a sort of regular basis. So we're currently remodeling our the office space to to recognize the social distancing requirements. And then we will develop some sort of rotor arrangement so that staff can actually come into the office and have some support. Because whilst the majority can get by working remotely, there is something about occasionally having some human interaction to to help you and as part of staff development to uh, to to carry on with yeah. that so is there anything else that you'd like to talk about in terms of the covid19 response from Hertfordshire community services or otherwise i think the thing that has struck me is how quickly things happened and how quickly people were comfortable that they happened for me i think it's about reviewing some of those wider processes about why in the past would it take three, four, five months, if not longer, to get simple changes completed. And yet when we're faced with a a common situation and a crisis, decisions can be made very quickly, but actually they're the same sorts of decisions that people were resenting or rejecting or or rebuting in the past. So... uh, I think that is something that we all collectively need to look at. The process, the processes we operate and I suppose our appetite for risk when adopting those processes, because we do seem to have become a very risk averse society, I suppose, not just the NHS. And I think some of that risk aversion disappeared as part of responding to COVID. So so we might need to just reset where, where the risk appetite and where the risk threshold is to, to make sure that developments in the future can move forward. Thank you, David. Thank you for your time and having talking to us today. That's really good of you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. All of the HFMA's COVID-19 related briefings, blogs and news articles are openly available on our website, hfma.org.uk. There is no need to be a member to access these, so please tell your colleagues. We have also launched a forum where finance colleagues from across the NHS can discuss issues and challenges in a safe space. You can sign up via the link in the network section on our website. If there are particular topics that you would like future podcasts to cover, then please get in touch via our email address, policy at hfma.org.uk. Thank you for listening to HFMA Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date with new episodes.